You know, I've, I've always enjoyed looking at stained glass windows, haven't you? You guys like stained glass, right? Who wouldn't? But did you ever wonder why so many churches have them? I mean, sure, there's, a, there's the obvious answer that they're beautiful, and there's also the fact that with their images of Christ and, and of the prophets and the scenes from the Bible, that in earlier times they helped to teach those stories to folks that weren't able to read. But then you have the abstract designs, like the one behind me there. And it's pretty, but there has to be more to it than just that, more than just the aesthetic. So what do you think the purpose would be? Well, if you think about it for, for just a minute, the purpose of most windows is to allow a view of the outside. But the purpose of stained glass is not to allow people to see outside, but to illuminate the interior and to focus light into the heart of the building. And in the same way, in the hands of the right teacher, a good sermon illustration can do exactly the same thing. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said in preaching, the text is the house and the illustrations are the window that let the light in. And in today's reading, the Apostle Paul does exactly that by using the story of the patriarch Abraham as a window to illuminate how we as individuals are made right with God. And this is what he writes. This is Romans chapter 4. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that's not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something that they've earned. But people are counted as righteous not because of their works, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. You know, if you remember from, from last week, and we've been kind of going through this whole series in Romans, Paul had just told us in no uncertain terms that external religious practices and trying hard to keep the Mosaic law can't save us. And he's been kind of laying out the foundations of this argument that salvation is only through faith in the shed blood of Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? People were listening, and folks were coming to Christ, and the church in Rome was growing, but there was still this kind of confusion. There was still a, a level of misunderstanding about what exactly the ramifications of this Christian faith were on the traditional teachings of the Jewish Torah. And how does this kind of affect the Hebrews' position as God's chosen people? Because now we've got all these Gentiles hanging around. And remember now, we, we talked about originally the church in Rome was most likely started by a group of Jewish pilgrims who had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. On that day when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles and they're all speaking in different languages and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And Peter stands up. And he preaches this incredibly convicting and moving sermon, and 3,000 people are added to the church that day. 3,000 primarily Jewish people are added to the church that day and come to Jesus. And now these Jewish pilgrims are back in Rome, and they are on fire, and they are ready to preach the good news. They're ready to tell people that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah that their people have been expecting. And they're telling how they had seen all these great signs performed by the Lord's followers in Jerusalem. And, and so they're home, and, 
they want to spread this message, but now suddenly it's leaking out beyond the walls of just the synagogue. And some of them are thinking, hey, wait a minute. This is our thing. If Jesus is the Messiah, he's our Messiah. If Jesus fulfilled prophecies, it was our prophecies that he fulfilled. If Jesus is the satisfaction of the law, it's our law he satisfied. And besides, we're, we're the ones who kept up the sacrifices and the traditions and the rituals. And so they have kind of this wall of misunderstanding about the nature and the scope of the salvation that Jesus came to bring. And as we've seen in the first couple chapters of this letter, the Apostle Paul has been poking some pretty big holes into that Jewish wall. But you know what? Paul's a smart guy. And he knows that many of the people in Rome who are going to read this letter wouldn't accept him and wouldn't listen to him and follow these things just because he said so. So under the influence of the Holy Spirit, now that Paul has opened up all of these flaws in their understanding, he's ready to start filling in those holes again. And he isn't going to use just any cheap, builder-grade, single-pane kind of sermon illustrations to do that with. He's going to pull out all the stops. Because the illustration that Paul is going to use is going to give these Roman Jews such a big and dramatic impression that it's going to enlighten their understanding of the nature and the scope of the salvation that Christ brought in the same way that the rays of the sun light up the stained glass windows of a cathedral. And that illustration is going to be none other than the founder of the Jewish race, their forefather, Abraham. A man that over the centuries has been esteemed by Muslims and, and Christians as well as Jews, and who even today is, is still revered by over half of the world's population. So if Paul was going to appeal to any one person to support his case, it was going to be Abraham. And since Paul had felt led to use Abraham as an example of someone who lived by faith, it's important for us to take the time to, to consider him as well. And while you do that, I want us to check up on our own faith and be certain that our salvation is based entirely on faith in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Because as one commentator said, anything less is not salvation at all, but at best a deception and at worst damnation. So let's dig in a little bit to the story and, and really ask ourselves the question, what can we learn practically for us today from the life of Abraham? And for one thing, aside from Moses, no other Old Testament character is mentioned more in the New Testament than Abraham. I mean, for example, the Apostle James refers to Abraham as God's friend in chapter 2 of his book. And that's a title that isn't used anywhere else in Scripture about a person close to God. Another example is that believers of all generations are called children of Abraham in Galatians 3.7. And there are hundreds of examples, but even if we could actually take the time and, and look at all of them, and even read through all the things that you see in the Old Testament, the life of Abraham takes up a huge portion, especially the Genesis narrative from his first mention in Genesis 11.26 all the way to his death in Genesis 25.8. But you know, his story really gets interesting in chapter 12. Because in those first three verses, we see the call of Abraham by God himself. And I want to share that with you. This is Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. 
I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And here you see, for, for our Jewish brothers and sisters, Abraham's life shows the blessing of simple obedience. You know, when he was asked to leave his family, Abraham left. And I can't think of very many of us that would do that, would we? I mean, how, how many of us sitting here would leave behind everything familiar and just go off to an unknown destination? Very, very few of us. And especially in Abraham's day, because in his time, the concept of family meant everything. And it was very unusual for family members to move apart from each other. And that wasn't the only example. When we're talking about family, another great example of Abraham's obedience is seen in Genesis 22 when God commands Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac on top of Mount Moriah. This is Genesis 22, verse 2. God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. And the next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. That's just amazing to me, because when you look at that, you see, just like the earlier command to leave his family that Abraham obeyed, he obeyed this one too, and he did it quickly, from what we can see in the text, right? It says he got up early the next morning. And he might have agonized over the decision, but when the time came for Abraham to act, he acted. Because obedience was not optional to God's commands when it came to Abraham. And because of that, the Jews hold him up as the premier example of a man who is saved by his works. They believed he was the epitome of a life lived correctly and they believe he was accepted and justified because he earned it. But the Apostle Paul is telling us today that if that is true, if Abraham was made right by his works, and he's got something to brag about, doesn't he? He can kind of stick out his chest a little bit and, and say, look at me. Look what I've accomplished. But remember, the Apostle Paul told us in Romans 4, he said, if his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that's not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. You know, in writing that, Paul is, he's reminding his audience that the driving force that kept Abraham going to do all of these things was not something from himself, but something he received from God by faith. Because, you know, at this point in his life, that's all he had to go on. That's the only thing in the world he had to go on was complete reliance on God. Genesis 15 tells us sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him, don't be afraid, Abraham, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. And so 
Paul's intention here is to tell us the real basis of Abraham's salvation. Simply stated, does Abraham believe God? God saved Abraham. I mean, think about it. This is an 85-year-old man, no children, and the Lord came to him and told him he's going to have a family. In fact, God told him his descendants would eventually be so numerous that there would be more than the stars that Abraham can see over his head. But if that sounds crazy to you for that to happen to an 85-year-old man, here's something even crazier. Abraham believed God completely, without hesitation, despite of every evidence to the contrary. Right? He, he's old. His wife is old. They live in the middle of nowhere, and even if they did manage to have a kid, what kind of life would it have? Except to be a, a desert nomad. But God spoke, and Abraham believed. And so the Bible tells us that faith in the word of God for Abraham was considered the basis of his righteousness. In other words, God said it, Abraham believed it, and that settled it. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. And that word counted there in the scripture means to basically to credit one's account and then to treat them accordingly. Like if, if you and I, especially if me, if I tried to walk in the bank and write out a check on an overdrawn account, they would treat me accordingly, right? They'd show me the door. But if I went into the bank this afternoon and deposited a million dollars in cash and then wrote out a check on my account, they'd treat me like a millionaire, right? Now, that's not going to happen, but, but do you see the spiritual side of this truth? When we place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, God credits our account in the bank of heaven with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and then he treats us accordingly. He treats us just like he would treat Jesus. But if we attempt to open our account in heaven and try to gain God's favor and substitute our own righteousness, he treats us like we deserve for that too. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, we are all, right? And all means what? All. All means all. He says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. So, you know, that means even on your best day, even when you have on your shiniest church mask and you have your best altar boy manners and and butter wouldn't melt in your mouth, it's still not good enough. It's still not good enough. And the point that Paul is making is that, and he really kind of pulls it all together in Romans verses 4 and 5, he says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they've earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their works, but because of their faith in a God who forgives. And he tells us if if we're saved by our works, then God is just paying off a debt that he has to save sinners. I mean, just imagine for those of you that maybe that still work, I know a lot of you are retired, but you go into work one week and on payday, the boss comes around and hands you your paycheck and says, uh, hey, Linda, here's a little gift for you. Right? How would you feel, right? You say, gift, nothing. I worked for that check. I earned that. And that same is same thing is true of salvation. If I am saved because I earned it, then I can brag about my goodness. It's my right. It would mean that God owes me for what I've done, but brothers and sisters, you can count on the fact that God is never going to be indebted to any one of us. None of us. And what really blesses me about reading that is knowing that I don't have to get good before I can come to God. Because, you know, that verse that we read talks about a God who saves sinners. And you see, he's not sitting up in heaven saying, you know, I sure wish that boy would get his life on track. I sure wish he would straighten up and start living for me because I'd really like to save him. But you know, God isn't saying that. That's not the case. Instead, 
God reaches out in mercy to save me, not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, but in spite of all of those things, in spite of myself. And now that Paul really, in his verse, he's talking about this, and he's kind of on a roll, and he's got all these illustrations going with Abraham, and he really wants to, to frame out this whole thing by making reference to one of Israel's greatest kings and one of his most notorious sinners, and that's David. So Paul writes, David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. And then he's going to quote from Psalm 32, and he says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. You know, most commentators have thought this psalm was occasioned by David's sin with Bathsheba, and he's, he's trying to find the words to express his shame and his humiliation. And, and then he goes on and says, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Just trust in him by faith. So David realized, and Paul is writing, that in spite of ourselves, that in Christ God has forgiven our sins and completely removed them from us and covered them. Covered them so completely that nothing can ever uncover them again because the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cover all of my sins, the past, the present, and the future. They've been covered if you're in Jesus Christ. And that's kind of, by the way, one of the reasons our Reformed faith teaches the perseverance of the saints, or some folks call it eternal security, or maybe once saved, always saved. Because if I can't do anything to earn my salvation, why would I have to work to keep it? Why would I have to work to keep it? And just in case you think that sounds like license to go out and live any way that you might want, for those of us who have received Christ by faith, nothing could be further from the truth. Because when I think about it and I realize that the Holy Lord of heaven reached down into the gutter and pulled me out, not because of anything that I had to offer, but in spite of all the ways that I would mess up, and knowing everything about me, that he would go ahead and send his son to die on the cross for me. How could I not want to live to please him? How could I not want to work for him? How could I not want to live a life that glorified Christ? But, you know, you can only do that when your faith is genuine. When you realize that your sins will never be charged to your account because they've already been credited to his. And that he paid our debt and then credited his righteousness to us so that now, right now, today, brothers and sisters, we are the children of God. And we're justified in the eyes of the Father. And Paul wants to pull all of these illustrations together. And now that he's kind of got his audience where he wants them, and he's really ready to cement this whole idea in place. And just to make sure that there's no misunderstandings, he writes, Now, is this blessing only for the Jews? Or is it for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith so clearly. God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit, too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. No confusion there, right? Pretty clear. Speaking of misunderstandings, it reminded me of a story of a small country church 
there was a pastor that called a congregational meeting and he, he put a notice in the bulletin that, that told the date and the time and the reason the meeting that was going to be called. And, and in the bulletin, it said it was to approve the purchase of a chandelier. Well, the time for the, the meeting came around, but before it barely got started, one of the members spoke up and said, I'm going to tell you what I think. Buying that new chandelier may seem like a good idea to you people, but I'm against it for at least three reasons. First of all, chandeliers are too expensive and we can't afford one. Second of all, there ain't nobody around here who knows how to play one of them things. And thirdly, what we really need is a new ceiling light for the sanctuary. And I tell you that story because I think it illustrates the point that Paul is making. You see, the the Jews of Paul's day, and even in our day, think that they understand what they're talking about when they hold up Abraham as a paragon of righteousness. But they don't understand the real nature of why and what that means. But you and I, by the grace of God, have have got his word. We've got the, the scriptures right with us to clear up any misunderstandings that we might have. If we allow this book to say what it says, and don't try to make it say what we want it to say. So let's make no mistake this morning. In our lesson and at this table that we're about to go to, when God answers the question of how we are to be saved, it's not by law, but by his grace through faith in one thing and one thing only, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father God, it is... Truly right, Lord, in our great joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially, Lord, in this Holy Supper. A meal, Lord, that we're calling your perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask you, Lord, by the the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now, Lord, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.